You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. And now, O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, Merry Christmas to you all on this uh, cold winter morning. You know, Christmas is a, is a season for childlike wonder and play. And we can lose track of this because of the storm and stress of this time of year, but we get reminders along the way. Uh, our family stopped at Ikea uh, right before Christmas and picked up a little a multicolored tea set for our three-year-old daughter. Now, we didn't do a good job of hiding it in the van, and uh, for some reason that was sitting face-up right at the foot of her car seat, and before Mary was even in the seat, she made contact, eye contact with it, and she said, Whoa, what's that? We howled in the car, we laughed as we quickly covered it up, and that became a catchphrase in the gentle at home during Christmas. Whoa, what's that? You know, I believe this is what John's gospel is after in its first chapter. John wants our first encounter with Jesus to lead to a very fitting response. Whoa, what's that? Or put in terms of one of my favorite Christmas carols, what child is this? You know, my instincts and perhaps yours are toward domestication toward making things manageable and understandable so that they might remain under my control. So I'll settle for a domesticated view of Jesus. I might turn his nativity scene into a sweet one of familial tranquility or, or hope for worldwide peace or some such other line from a well-meaning uh, Christmas card. And all of these sentiments have their place. But there's a magic at play during Christmas that resist any attempt at domestication or Christmas card greetings. And it's this magic, not a slate of hand, no smoke or mirrors, but the true magic of all reality, the, the magic that holds the universe together and charts the stars on their course and keeps the oceans from swallowing up the land. It's this magic that John's gospel wants you to know about on this first Sunday of Christmas. A magic and a power that resists any attempts at rational or, or spiritual control. This magic forces us to struggle with the limits of our language to describe and to represent what's really going on in the Christmas miracle. You see, we're talking about light and darkness, the beginning of time, eternity, God's own inner life, and the great mystery and beauty of humanity and God's deep love for it. And every first Sunday in Christmas, the miracle of this season is presented to us in terms that transcend our normal experiences of life, that force us to see in ways that we don't normally see. We peer into a stable and we see an infant, John's Gospel says, and when we see this infant, we see the creator of the world, the one who holds all things together. We see the very face of God. 
Our gospel reading this morning is John's birth narrative. Now, I don't want to bore you with Bible facts. I don't want to lose you. But it is my understanding that, that John's gospel assumes that you know the other birth narratives in Matthew and Luke. And John's gospel is providing for us and for you a deep and penetrating exposition of what we're dealing with when we step into the stable and when we see the manger. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Magic, miracle, wonder. Why is there something and not nothing at all? That's the great question posed by all of humanity in every moment of its history. And John's gospel answers this question without any clearing of the throat. In the beginning was the word. This is why there is something and not nothing. Uh, Karl Barth said that the first and primary character trait of any theologian, any Christian really, is wonder. Don't don't you love it when you hear somebody talk about something that they're passionate about? Bart insists on a childlike wonder at the great mysteries of the gospel. The Brits have a a really great word for this. uh, Gobsmacked. You know, given our human nature and the realities of our lives, I don't think we can sustain a sense of wonder at all times. We'll have heaven for that. But I do believe God in his kindness gives us these Mount of Transfiguration moments when we're allowed to peer into something beyond our normal modes of seeing. And John 1 is a text that provides Christians with this kind of moment, a moment that seizes us in our tracks and leaves us gobsmacked. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The infant Jesus is the Word. He's the self-unveiling of God, who is God and who was with God at the very beginning. There was never a time when this baby's divine nature was not. He was with God at the beginning. If you hear John 1.1 in the beginning and hear echoes of Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, then you're hearing an echo that John intends. John wants you to know that all of time, before and after, and both testaments of our Bible, the old and the new, are like a, like a double helix that centers around this baby in a manger. He is the chief principle of all that is seen and unseen. You know, John's gospel tells us so much about the Word, about the Son, about the second person of the Trinity, All things were made through him. Existence and matter and being have no independent properties apart from him. He is life. He's the source of all living things. Your your kitty cat wouldn't be without him. You wouldn't be without him. He is life and light, the source of all sustenance, the source of all goodness, the source of everything. John wants you to know right out of the gate of his gospel that whatever view you have of Jesus Christ, whatever view you have of this little infant in a manger, it's not high enough, nor could it ever be high enough. We're talking about the very being and nature of God. Indeed, what child is this? 
All of this is wondrous. All of this leaves us gobsmacked. To speak about the Word is to speak about the personal and relational agent of God's own being who reaches into the world to create it and to redeem it. The Word makes speech about God possible and allows us access as humans, finite creatures, to the very being of the eternal God. We can't say enough about it. The first few verses of John force us to use human words and language to speak about God and His Word, and it brings us to the brink of our own speech, where its only fitting and proper conclusion is singing and silence. What child is this who lay to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping, whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch are keeping? But there's more. And it's this more part where fantasy and myth meet reality. In fact, it's this more part of John's first chapter that's more real and more tangible and more personal and more relational than anything we've ever known in the whole of human history. We had intimations of it in the Old Testament. It paved the way. But no one could have anticipated it quite like this. Isaiah told us back in the 48th chapter of his, of his prophecy that God was going to do something so radically new in our midst that no eye or nor, no ear had ever seen or heard the like. And here it is heralded on this first Sunday of Christmas in John's first gospel. And the word became flesh. We know that verse, we've heard it so many times, but if there is ever a woa, what's that moment? It's at this crossroads right here in John 1.14. Here the plates of the universe begin to shift. Here time with its forward and backward dynamic now has a new center and the word became flesh. You know from the Garden of Eden to the Tower of Babel, to Nebuchadnezzar's great statue, to the evil desires of our own hearts. We've been trying to make ourselves like God from the beginning. You know, Michael the prophet describes gross acts of injustice as if people are trying to act like their God. Our desire to be God ranges near the heart of our fallen state. You know, we're God killers. We even did it to Jesus. And every attempt humanity makes at being like God is pointless and futile. Yet John 1.14 reveals the Bible's greatest news. Our attempts to become like God have been answered and remedied with the grace and the triumph of God's becoming a man. The very presence of God dwelling among his people not in the external skins of a portable tabernacle that traveled with God's people through the wilderness, but now in the human skin of an infant child lying in a manger. This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring him laud, the babe, the son of Mary. He took on flesh. He assumed a human nature. God becomes morally liable 
in the memorable words of Maximus the Confessor, yet without sin. To take on flesh was to take on that which stands under God's judgment. It's little wonder that we can barely get out of John's first chapter before we hear John the Baptist announce, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God becomes a man. God enters into the sinful mess of our human existence, our deprivation and our wantonness. Our sinful and rebellious desire to be like God has been met by God's own humility in becoming a man. Why on earth would God do this for people like you and me? There are two answers to this this morning. John tells us that God did this to reveal his glory. In the face of Jesus Christ, in the face of a babe lying in a manger, we see the very glory of God on display. And by the end of the Gospel of John, John wants you to know without any reservation that God's glory is most fully revealed at the cross. The Word became flesh to rescue humanity. And it could only be rescued by the same Word becoming the Lamb of God who removes the power and the presence of sin. Nails, spears shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. Hail, hail, the Word made flesh, the babe, the Son of Mary. Christ also takes on human flesh. The book of Hebrews tells us, so that Christ can pray for you, so that he can intercede for you with understanding. You know, I think there's a real tenderness to the majesty of this truth. Christ learned obedience in the school of human suffering so that he could be a fitting and proper high priest for you and for me. Can you hear Jesus praying for you right now? Oh, Father, I see her heartbreak. I see her betrayal. I know that human experience, Father. Father, he gave into temptation again. I know the force of that temptation, Father. I never yielded to it for his sake, Father, but I sure know its force. He became sin so that we might share in his righteousness. And he prays, and he prays, and he prays for you and for me as our high priest. This baby in the manger is your high priest, and he knows your frame. And he remembers, in the words of the psalmist, that we're all just dust. So on this first Sunday of Christmas, John's Gospel wants you to know that there is nothing more real than the Word who is God and the Word who took on your human flesh. I know that we can't maintain that sense of wonder at all times. But on this Christmas morning, together, here in this place... Perhaps the weight of it can just sit on us for a while. Because everything that you care deeply about, and every hope and dream that you have for those whom you love, rests on the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us so that we can see the very glory of God. So bring him incense, gold, and myrrh. Come, peasant and king, to own him. 
The King of kings salvation brings. Let loving hearts enthrone him. Raise, raise a song on high. The virgin sings her lullaby. Joy, joy, for Christ is born. The babe, the son of Mary. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.